Good evening. Welcome to Pepke. We're so happy to have you guys here and really thrilled for this night. It's been a long time in coming. I think several of you know that. My name is Christina Miller, and I am a lifestyle medicine physician here in town. And I practice plant-based nutrition and stress reduction to help patients heal themselves. So you can imagine what an honor it is to have someone like Dr. Greger here tonight. But before we get to him, we have a little bit of business to cover. First of all, I have to take a moment to thank my sponsors. In case you guys didn't notice, this was a free event tonight. And that was on purpose because they wanted to make this a free community event open to everybody. And that was done by the sponsors when we suggested bringing Dr. Greger here. They jumped so quickly, I couldn't even believe it. So I want to say a humongous thank you to Aspen Valley Hospital, David Ressler, the CEO, and the Aspen Board of Directors, Aspen Valley Hospital Board of Directors. Thank you so much. It truly proved that you are indeed a community hospital. The second major sponsor that I have to thank is Dr. Kim Scheuer and Aspen Medical Care. Her enthusiasm in so many ways really helped to make this event happen when there were some, a couple glitches that occurred. So thank you to Kim and Aspen Medical Care. And then there's several people in the community that are living and practicing plant-based lifestyles, sharing it with their clients in the healthcare world in different, in different means. And I just want to take a moment because many of them helped us put this together to advertise it to make this happen tonight. And those people that I want to thank are Don Shepard, Sandy Holmes, Martin Oswald, Melody Durham, Derek Olson, and my wonderful husband, Troy Miller, for listening to me as I put this all together. Okay, enough of that. Finally, if any of you don't know, if you've never been to Pepke before, the bathrooms are actually downstairs out there if you have to go. Um, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, introduce our special guest of the night. So as I was saying, in lifestyle medicine, we sort of have a Michael Jordan of lifestyle medicine, someone who's one of the greatest, who, who's, who's leaving his mark. And, and to me, that's Michael Greger. His research helps put evidence to what we're doing. When patients come in and it's so different what we're teaching them, we can refer to him and his website, which is free. And he's actually circulating something so you guys can all, an iPad, so you can all sign up for his website if you're interested. It's free to us, it's free to the patients, and it's all evidence-based science. And so um, his website is nutritionfacts.org, and it's something that I use in my practice all the time. Dr. Greger is, for those of you who don't know him, and I know many of you do, um, but for those of you who are new to him, he's a physician, he's a, a best-selling author with his book, How Not to Die. He's a founding fe a fellow of American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And he's a huge plant-based advocate. And when, one of the things I love so much about Dr. Greger is he's not afraid to go against what the norm is. When his, it may be a medical school, he learns something different. When the culture is something different, he's not afraid to dig deep into the research and find out what it, what it really says. And then he lives it. He's a pure example of the way to be healthy, which is, a, is wonderful for all of us. 
So without saying too much more, I'm going to go ahead and welcome, and thank you for coming, Dr. Michael Greger. Good evening, everyone. How does that sound, the cheap seats in the back? Good? All right. Allow me to begin on a personal note. <laughs> this is a picture of me taken around the time that my grandmother was diagnosed with end-stage heart disease and sent home to die. She already had so many bypass surgeries to basically run out of plumbing at some point, could find a wheelchair, crushing chest pain. Her life was over at age 65. There's nothing more the doctors could do. But then she heard about this guy, Nathan Pritikin, one of our early lifestyle medicine pioneers. And what happened next is actually detailed in Pritikin's biography. My grandma was one of the death's door people like Frances Greger, my grandmother who arrived at one of Pritikin's early sessions in a wheelchair. Mrs. Gregor had heart disease national claudication. Her condition so bad, she could no longer walk without great pain in her chest and legs within three weeks, though. She was not only out of her wheelchair, she was walking 10 miles a day. Here's a picture of my grandma at her grandson's wedding, 15 years after doctors had abandoned her to die. She was given a medical death sentence at age 65, thanks to a healthy diet, was able to enjoy another 31 years on this planet to age 96 to enjoy her six grandkids, including me. That's why I went into medicine. Now, years later, when Dr. Dean Ornish published his landmark lifestyle heart trial proving, with something called quantitative angiography, that indeed heart disease could be reversed. Arteries opened up without drugs, without surgery, just a plant-based diet and other healthy lifestyle behaviors. I assumed this was going to be the game changer. Right? I, I, look, my family had seen it with their own eyes. But here it was, in black and white, published in some of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, yet... Nothing happened. So, wait a second. If effectively the cure to our number one killer could get lost down some rabbit hole and ignored, what else might there be in the medical literature that could you know, help my patients but just didn't have a corporate budget driving its promotion? Well, I made it my life's mission to find out. For those of you who aren't familiar with my work, every year I read through every issue of every English language nutrition journal in the world so busy folks like you don't have to. Very nice. I then compile all the most interesting, most groundbreaking, the most practical findings and new videos and articles I upload every day to my nonprofit site, nutritionfacts.org. Everything on the website is free. There are no ads, no corporate sponsorships, strictly non-commercial, not selling anything, just put up as a public service, as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother. New videos and articles every day on the latest in evidence-based nutrition. What a concept. So where did Pritikin get his evidence from? Well, a network of missionary hospitals set up throughout sub-Saharan Africa uncovered what may be one of the most important advances in medicine, 
according to one of the most preeminent uh, physicians of the last century, Dr. Dennis Burkett, the fact that many of the major and commonest diseases were universally rare, like heart disease. The African population of Uganda, for example, coronary artery disease is almost non-existent. Wait a second. Our number one killer, almost non-existent, what were they eating? Well, they were eating lots of vegetables and grains and greens and their vegetables, excuse me, their protein almost exclusively from plant sources. And they had the cholesterol levels to prove it, actually very similar to what one sees in kind of modern day plant eaters. So wait a second, maybe they were just dying early from something else, never lived long enough to get heart, at the heart attacks, right? No, here's age-matched heart attack rates in Uganda versus St. Louis. Now, 632 autopsies in uh, Uganda, only one myocardial infarction out of 632 age and gender-matched autopsies in Missouri, 136 myocardial infarction, more than 100 times the rate of our number one killer. In fact, they were so blown away, went back, did another 800 autopsies in Uganda. Still, just that one small healed infarct, meaning it wasn't even the cause of death, out of 1,427 pages. Less than one in a thousand. Whereas here, heart disease is an epidemic. Here's a list of diseases commonly found here and in places that eat and live like the U.S., but were rare or even non-existent among populations that center their diets around whole plant foods. These are among our most common diseases, like obesity, for example. Hiatal hernia, the most common stomach problem. Varicose veins, hemorrhoids, two most common venous problems. Colorectal cancer, leading cancer killer. Diverticulosis, number one disease of the intestines. Appendicitis, number one cause of emergency abdominal surgery. Gallbladder disease, number one cause of non-emergency abdominal surgery, as well as ischemic heart disease, our commonest cause of death here, but a rarity among plant-based populations, which suggests that heart disease may be a choice, like cavity. If you look at the teeth of people who lived 10,000 years before the invention of the toothbrush, pretty much no cavity. Didn't brush a day in their lives. No flossing. Yet, no cavities. Why? Because candy bars hadn't been invented yet. Okay, so wait a second. Why do people continue to get cavities when we know they're preventable through dietary change? It was simple. Because the pleasure people derive from dessert may outweigh the cost and discomfort of the dentist chair. And look, that's fine. Right? If you're an adult, and the benefits outweigh the risk for you and your family, then go for it. I mean, I certainly enjoy the occasional indulgence. I've got a good dental plan. <laughs> okay, but what if instead of talking about the plaque on our teeth, we're talking about the plaque building up inside of our arteries, another disease that can be prevented through changes in our diet. Okay, now, what are the consequences for you and your family? Now, now we're not talking about scraping tartar anymore. Now we're talking about life and death. Now look, it's still up to each of us to make our own decisions as to what to eat, 
how to live, but we should make these choices consciously, right? Educating ourselves about the predictable consequences of our actions. Atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, is a disease that begins in childhood. By age 10, nearly all kids raised on the standard American diet already have what are called fatty streaks within their arteries, the first stage of the disease. And then these streaks can turn into plaques in our 20s, get worse in our 30s, and then start killing us off. In our heart, it's called a heart attack. In our brain, the same disease can be called a stroke. So if there's anyone here this evening older than age 10, <laughs> then the question isn't whether or not to eat healthy to prevent heart disease. It's whether you want to reverse the heart disease you already have. But is that even possible? You know, when researchers took people with heart disease, put them on the kind of plant-based diet followed by populations that did not get heart disease, their hope was, hey, maybe we could slow the disease down, perhaps even stop it. But instead, something miraculous happened. As soon as people started, stopped eating artery-clogging diets, their bodies were able to start dissolving some of that plaque away, opening up arteries without drugs, without surgery, suggesting their bodies wanted to be healthy all along, but were just never given the chance. This remarkable improvement in blood flow to the heart muscle itself was after just three weeks eating healthy. Let me share with you what's been called the best kept secret in all of medicine. Best kept secret in medicine is that sometimes, given the right conditions, the body can actually heal itself. You know, if you, um, you know, whack your shin really hard on a coffee table, you can get all red, hot, painful, swollen, inflamed, but will heal naturally if you just stand back, let your body work its magic, right? Okay, but what if you whacked your shin in the same place day after day? In fact, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> you'd never heal. You'd go to your doctor and be like, oh, my shin hurts. They'd be like, no problem. Whip out their pad, write a prescription for painkillers, you're still whacking your shin three times a day. Oh, still really hurts like it. Oh, I feel so much better with those pain pills on board. Thank heavens for modern medicine. You know, it's like those nitroglycerin pills that people take for crushing chest pain. Tremendous relief, but you're not doing anything to treat the underlying cause of the disease. Right? Your, our bodies want to come back to health if we let them. But if we keep re-damaging ourselves three times a day, we may never heal. You know, it's like smoking. One of the most amazing things I learned in all my medical training was that within about 15 years of stopping smoking, your lung cancer risk approaches that of a lifelong non-smoker. Isn't that amazing? Your lungs can clear out all that tar, and eventually it's almost as if you never started smoking at all. And every morning of our smoking life, that healing process starts until wham, first cigarette of the day. Re-injuring our lungs with every puff, just like we can re-injure our arteries with every bite, 
when all we had to do all along, the miracle cure is to just stand back, get out of the way, stop re-injuring ourselves and let our body's natural healing processes bring us back towards health. The human body is a self-healing machine. Sure, you can choose moderation and hit yourself with a smaller hammer. (laughs) But why beat yourself up at all? This is nothing new. Look at this, American Heart Journal, 1977. Cases like Mr. F.W. here. Heart disease so bad, couldn't even make it to the mailbox. Started eating healthier. A few months later, he was climbing mountains, no pain. Not a bad thing to be able to do in Aspen. Now, there are fancy new classes of anti-angina drugs on the market now cost thousands of dollars a year, but at the highest dose may be able to extend exercise duration as long as 33 and a half seconds. Does not look like those choosing the drug route will be climbing mountains anytime soon. See, plant-based diets aren't just safer and cheaper. They can work better because you're treating the actual cause of the disease. Heart disease is killer number one in this country. Killer number two is cancer. What happens if you put cancer on a plant-based diet? Dr. Dean Ornish and colleagues showed that they could put men on the same diet with early-stage prostate cancer and reverse the progression of their cancer And no wonder. If you take the blood of people eating the standard American diet, drip that blood onto human cancer cells growing in a petri dish, you can suppress cancer growth by a few percent. But you put people on a plant-based diet for a year, though, and their blood can do this. The blood circulating throughout the bodies of those eating plant-based has nearly eight times the stopping power when it comes to suppressing cancer cell growth. Now, this was for men in prostate cancer. They wanted to repeat this this study with women in breast cancer, the number one cancer killer specific to women. But look, they didn't want to wait a whole year to get the results. Women are dying now. So let's see what a plant-based diet can do after just two weeks against three different lines of human breast cancer. This is the before uh, cancer cell growth powering away at 100%. And then this is after eating healthy for just a few weeks. This is what's called a photomicrograph, a photograph taken under a microscope. It is a laid down, it's called a confluent layer of cancer, basically a carpet of breast cancer. Then they drip the blood of women eating the standard American diet onto that cancer. You can see it kind of breaks the cancer down in these kind of cancer continents here. Then you take these same women, put them on a plant-based diet for two weeks and retest in two weeks. So they act as their own controls. Same women, Two weeks later, after eating healthy, you lay down another carpet of breast cancer, drip their blood two weeks later, and all you're left with is that. Just a few individual cancer cells left, their bodies cleaned up. Before and after. Just two weeks eating healthy 
their bloodstream became that much more hostile to cancer. Now, suppressing cancer cell growth is nice. Getting rid of it is even better. This is what's called apoptosis, programmed cell death, where uh, your body basically reprograms cancer cells, forcing them into early retirement. Um, uh, this, is, uh, this is what's called tunnel imaging, measuring DNA fragmentation or cell death, where dying cancer cells show up as little white spots. So, for example, here. So even if you're a woman eating a pretty poor diet, you're not totally defenseless. You can kill off a few cancer cells. Take these same women two weeks later after eating healthy, and their blood can do that. This, it's like you're an entirely different person inside. The same blood now circulating throughout these women's bodies gained the power to significantly slow down and stop breast cancer cell growth after just two weeks. What kind of blood do we want in our body? What kind of immune system? We want blood that just kind of rolls over when new cancer cells pop up? Do we want blood circulating to every nook and cranny in our body with the power to slow down and stop it? Now, this dramatic strengthening in cancer defenses was after two weeks of a plant-based diet and exercise. They had these women out walking 30 to 60 minutes a day. So, well, wait a second. If you do two things, how do you know what role the diet played? So they decided to put it to the test. So researchers compared um, the uh, cancer cell clearances at apoptosis, um, the cancer-stopping power. Uh, this is what we saw before. Plant-based diet along with mild exercise, like walking every day, on average for 14 years. Plant-based diet um, and uh, moderate exercise, 14 years. That's the kind of cancer-stopping power you get. Compare that to the cancer cell clearance of your average sedentary Americans see a little cheeseburger there. I don't know if you can quite see that, which is essentially non-existent. All right, but it's this middle group that's interesting. How about 14 years standard American diet, but 14 years daily, strenuous, hour-long exercise like calisthenics? They wanted to know if you exercise long enough, if you exercise hard enough, can you rival some strolling plant eaters over here? And the answer is exercise helped. No question. But literally 5,000 hours in the gym is no match for a plant-based diet. This is that same tunnel imaging we saw before. Even if you're a couch potato living off of fried potatoes, you're not totally defenseless. You can knock off a few cancer cells. You exercise for 5,000 hours, you can kill off cancer cells left and right. But nothing appears to kick more cancer tush than a plant-based diet. We think this is because animal protein increases the levels in our body of a cancer-promoting growth hormone called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, involved in the acquisition and progression of malignant tumors. But... Right? Start eating healthy, cut down one's animal protein intake, and your IGF-1 levels drop within weeks, and if you continue to eat healthy, they drop even further. And your levels of IGF-1 binding protein go up. IGF-1 binding protein is like, one of our, it's like our body's emergency break. It's one of our ways our body protects itself from excessive growth. So sure, in as few as two weeks, you can drop your body's production of IGF-1, but wait a second. 
What about all the IGF-1 you have circulating in your body from the bacon and eggs you had three weeks ago? Well, your liver releases the snatch squad of binding proteins to tie up any excess IGF-1, pull it out of the system, protective levels go up within weeks, benefits continue to accrue the longer you eat healthy. Here's the experiment that really nailed IGF-1 as the villain. Same thing as before, healthy diet and exercise, cancer cell growth drops, cancer cell death shoots up. But then here's the interesting column here. What if you add back to the cancer? Just the amount of IGF-1 you banish from your system because you started eating healthy, what happens? You effectively erase the diet and exercise effect. It's almost as if you never started eating healthy at all. So this is why um, we think that uh, this has been used to explain why some of the largest studies on diet and cancer in history have found that the incidence of all cancers combined is lower among those eating more plant-based diets because they're eating less uh, animal protein, so they have less IGF-1 in their system, uh, meat, dairy, and egg protein, less IGF-1, which leads to less cancer growth. How much less cancer growth are we talking about? Well, if you take uh, thousands of people, follow them up um, for 18 years, um, those who eat lots of uh, protein in middle age um, have about a 75% increased risk of dying prematurely um, and then a fourfold increase in risk of dying specifically from cancer. Uh, but not all proteins, specifically animal protein, which makes sense given the higher IGF-1 levels that we talked about. The Academic Institution in California, where this study was performed, sent out a press release with a memorable opening line. That chicken wing you're eating could be as deadly as a cigarette. <laughs> Explaining that, look, a quadrupling in, in risk of dying from cancer, that's comparable to what one might get smoking cigarettes. So what was the response in the scientific community to this revelation that diets high in meat, eggs, and dairy could be harmful to health as smoking. Well, one nutrition scientist said it was potentially dangerous to tell people about this study. Why? Because a smoker might think, hey, why bother quitting smoking? My ham and cheese sandwich is just as bad for me. <laughs> so let's not tell anyone about the whole meat and cheese thing, right? This reminds me of this famous Philip Morris cigarette ad that tried to downplay the risk by saying, hey, you think secondhand smoke is bad, increasing your risk of lung cancer 19%. Well, hey, drinking one or two glasses of milk every day, maybe three times as bad, a 62% increased risk of lung cancer. Or doubling your risk frequently cooking with oil or multiplying your risk, uh, uh, tripling your risk by eating non-vegetarian uh, of heart disease, or multiplying your risk sixfold if you eat lots of meat and dairy. So, they conclude, oh, let's keep some perspective here. <laughs> the risks from secondhand smoke may be well below that of uh, other everyday activities. So, therefore, breathe deep. That's like saying, yeah, don't worry about getting stabbed because getting shot so much worse. Uh, how about neither? Right? Two risks don't make a right. 
Of course, uh, you'll note that Philip Moore stopped throwing dairy under the bus once they purchased Kraft Foods. <laughs> Just saying. All right. We talked about killer number one and killer number two. Every year, the CDC compiles the top 15 causes of death in the United States. I thought I'd just go through the list one through 15, talk about the role diet may play in preventing, arresting, and reversing each of our top 15 killers. Um, killers, uh, well, how much time? We have? 13, only 13 to go. <clears throat> um, the top three killers used to be heart disease, cancer, stroke. Oh, that's so 2007. Now it's heart disease, um, uh, cancer, and COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases like emphysema, Thankfully, a plant-based diet can be used to help prevent COPD. can even be used to treat COPD, significantly improving lung function over time. We don't know if it's the antioxidant effect of fruits and vegetables or the anti-inflammatory effect. But, you know, the tobacco industry had a very different take on this study. I mean, if adding plants to our diet can improve lung function, wouldn't it be easier to just add plants to cigarettes and indeed... The addition of acai berries to cigarettes evidently has a protective effect against emphysema in smoking mice. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Next, they're going to start adding berries to meat. And indeed, I couldn't make this stuff up, ladies and gentlemen. The, the addition of fruit extracts to burger patties was not without its glitches. For example, the blackberries dyed the burger patties sink purplish color, kind of turned people off a little bit. Though evidently you can improve the tenderness of lamb carcasses if you infuse them before rigor mortis sets in with kiwi fruit juice. You can even improve the nutritional profile of frankfurters um, by adding powdered grape seeds, though there were complaints uh, that the grape seed particles became visible in the final product. And uh, look, if there's one thing we know about hot dog eaters, it's that they're picky about what goes in their food. <laughs> oh, oh, pig anus. Oh, but grape seeds. Oh. All right, now killer number four is strokes. Preventing strokes may be all about eating potassium-rich foods, yet most Americans don't even reach the recommended minimum daily intake of potassium, and by most, we're talking more than 98% of Americans don't even reach the minimum daily intake of potassium because more than 98% of Americans don't eat enough plants. Potassium comes from the words potash, take any plant, and uh, reduce the, put it in a pot, reduce the ash, left with potassium, potassium, so-called vegetable alkali. But who can name me one plant food in particular high in potassium? Banana, of course, bananas. I, it's funny, you know, I give the, I, you know, I've spoken all around the world, and that's like, it's like the universe, it's like the one thing everybody seems to know about nutrition. I, I like, I don't know if Chiquita had a great PR firm, or, but uh, turns out, Bananas don't even make the top 50 sources. Coming in at number 86, right after fast food vanilla milkshakes. It goes fast food and then bananas. It's funny, when I was writing the new book, I, I went back to check the USDA Nutrient Database to make sure they had an expand. They actually expanded their database now. Currently, bananas don't even make the top 
1,000 sources coming in at number 1,161 right after Reese's Pieces. I kid you not. Uh, the most concentrated source is potassium in our diet. Number one, greens. Number two, beans. And number three, dates. Again, bananas don't even make the top thousand. In fact, if you look at the next leading cause of death, bananas could be downright dangerous. <laughs> Killer number six, Alzheimer's disease. Four million Americans affected. You know, uh, 20 years ago, it wasn't even in the top 10. According to the latest dietary guidelines for the prevention of Alzheimer's disease, two most important things we can do. Number one, cut down our intake of meat, dairy, and junk, and increase our intake of vegetables, legumes, which are beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, fruits, and whole grains. This is based on studies going back decades now showing that those who eat meat Red meat, white meat, doesn't matter. Um, between two to three times the risk of becoming demented later in life. And the longer one ate uh, meat-free, the lower one's risk appeared to fall. Clinic number seven is type 2 diabetes, a disease we've known we can both prevent and treat with a plant-based diet since the 1930s, where they took a bunch of uh, diabetics um, and put them on a plant-based diet, and in a period of five years, about a quarter of them were able to get off their insulin altogether. Say, yeah, but look, plant-based diets tend to be relatively low-calorie diets, right? All right? So maybe their diabetes got better because they lost so much weight, right? I mean, bariatric surgery you can, you can help diabetes with, right? And so how do we know it wasn't just the weight loss, how do you know something particular about the diet? I mean, to, to figure that out, what we'd have to do is design a study where you put people on a healthy diet but force them to eat so much food that they don't lose any weight. Right? Then we could see if there are particular benefits of plant-based diet beyond just all the easy weight loss. Well, we'd have to wait a few decades, but here it is. They weighed subjects every day, and if they started to lose weight, they were made to eat more food. In fact, so much more food, some of the participants had problems eating it all. They're like, oh, not another salad. <laughs> but eventually they adapted, so no weight loss, despite restricting meat, eggs, dairy, and junk. Okay, so with zero weight loss, did their diabetes still get better? Well, insulin needs were cut 60%, and half the diabetics ended off all their insulin altogether. Wow. How many years did that take? No, 16 days. 16 days later. So we're talking diabetics who've had diabetes for as long as 20 years, injecting 20 units of insulin a day, then 13 days later on none. Diabetes for 20 years, then off all insulin in less than two weeks. Diabetes for 20 years because no one had told them about a plant-based diet. For decades, they were 13 days away. Here's participant number 15. 
32 units of insulin on the control diet, and then 18 days later on, none. Lower blood sugars on 32 units, less insulin. That's the power of plants, right? And remember, this was with no weight loss. His body just started working that much better. What are the side effects? How about cholesterols dropping like a rock to under 150 on average? Again, in just a few weeks' time. So, you know, just like asking patients to make moderate changes in their diet will only net you moderate changes in terms of benefits in terms of cholesterol reduction. Right? How moderate do you want your diabetes? Everything in moderation you know, may be a truer statement than many people realize. Asking diabetic patients to make moderate changes in diet can leave them with moderate blindness. Right? Moderate kidney failure, moderate amputation, maybe just a few toes or something. Right? <laughs> Moderation in all things is not necessarily a good thing. Right? Remember that study that purported to show that diets high meat, eggs, and dairy could be harmful health as smoking? Well, supposedly found those who eat a lot of meat, eggs, and dairy are four times as likely to die from cancer or diabetes. Um, but if you look at the actual study, you'll see that's simply not true. Those eating lots of animal protein, middle-aged, didn't have four times the risk of dying from diabetes. They had 73 times the risk of dying from diabetes. Now, those that chose moderation, only a moderate amount of animal protein, oh, they just had 23 times the risk of death from diabetes. Killer number eight is kidney failure, um, uh, a disease that can be both we can both help prevent and treat with a plant-based diet. And no wonder, right? Kidneys are highly vascular organs, so no surprise that Harvard researchers found three dietary risk factors for declining kidney function. Number one, animal protein. Number two, animal fat. Number three, cholesterol. Animal fat can alter the actual structure of the human kidney. Um, uh, um, based on studies like this showing plugs of fat literally clogging up the works in autopsied human kidneys. And animal protein can have a profound effect on normal kidney function, causing something called hyperfiltration, increasing the workload on the kidney, but not plant protein. If you take people, give them a single meal of tuna fish, right? Tuna fish. You see increased pressure within their kidneys one, two, three hours after the meal in both non-diabetics and diabetics. Right? So we're not talking you know, adverse effects decades down the road, but literally within hours of it going into our mouth. Okay, but what if you ate the exact same amount of protein, but instead of having a tuna fish salad sandwich, you had a tofu salad sandwich? What would happen? Absolutely nothing. Your kidneys can handle plant protein without even batting an eyelash. So wait a second, why does animal protein cause that overload reaction, but not plant protein? It seems to be the inflammation triggered by the consumption of animal products. How do we know that? Because if you give a powerful anti-inflammatory drug along with that tuna fish, you can abolish that hyperfiltration protein leakage response to meat ingestion. And then there's the acid load. Um, uh, the consumption of foods like meat, eggs, and dairy um, causes the formation of acid, 
within our kidneys. Um, uh, the, uh, the, this can cause something called tubular toxicity, damage to the delicate urine-making tubes within the kidneys. Animal foods tend to be acid-forming, uh, particularly fish, which is the worst, but then pork, poultry, on down the list. Whereas plant foods tend to be either pretty neutral or actually base-forming alkaline to uh, particularly dark green leafy vegetables to counteract some of the acid formed from our diets. So the key to halting the progression of chronic kidney disease may lie in the produce aisle or the farmer's market rather than the farm a seed. So no surprise, um, these uh, plant-based diets have been used to treat uh, kidney failure for decades now. Um, this is uh, protein leakage on the standard low-sodium diet. That's typically what us physicians would put people on with declining kidney function. Then they switch them over to the supplemented vegan diet, then back to conventional, plant-based. Conventional, plant-based. Switching on and off kidney dysfunction like a light switch based on what was going into their mouth. Killer number nine, influenza, pneumonia, respiratory tract infections. What possible role could diet play in respiratory infections? Well, and something like pneumonia. Obviously, Hillary never saw my video, Kale and the Immune System, uh, talking about the immunostimulatory effects of kale. Is there anything kale cannot do? Someone once yelled out, taste good, but no, that's, <laughs> um, boosting antibody production sevenfold, but this is in a Petri dish, um, what about in people? If you take uh, men and women, the 50s, 60s, 70s, right before getting their Pneumovax vaccination, their pneumonia vaccination, split them up into two groups, half eat their regular diet. The other half, you just add a few servings of, of, of fruits and vegetables. What you see is a significantly boosted protective antibody response um, uh, uh, compared to those eating their regular diet. So this is not cutting down on meat or anything. Just adding fresh produce to our diet can significantly boost our immune function. And for something like pneumonia, that could be a lifesaver. Killer number 10 is... Suicide, suicidal depression. We've known for many years now that those that who eat healthier tend to feel healthier. Um, only about half the levels of depression, anxiety, and stress scores compared to those who eat more conventional diets. Uh, what we think was going on is that arachidonic acid, this is, is an inflammatory long-chain omega-6 fatty acid found in animal products, particularly... Um, uh, chi uh, chicken and eggs, that's the vast majority of chicken, also beef, sausage, etc. But, um, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the thought is that this arachidonic acid um, is inflaming people's brains and impairing mental illness, but mental function, but you don't know until you put it to the test. What they did is they removed um, uh, eggs, chicken, and other meat from people's diets, um, randomized to two groups, the other group continued to eat their regular diet, and saw significant improvement in mood after just two weeks in those eating more plant-based. Right? 
Um, and so um, uh, what we think is going on is that this arachidonic acid stuff is adversely impacting mental health via a cascade of neuroinflammation, brain inflammation, but we may be able to clear that inflammation from our brains in as few as two weeks by cutting down our intake of uh, eggs, chicken, and other meat. Uh, we said, wait a second, am I just cherry picking here? What about all the other studies? Uh, what about all the other diets that have been proven to improve mood? There aren't any. Um, as this recent uh, meta-analysis showed, only that plant-based dietary intervention, the only rigorous, randomized control trial ever to show positive mental health benefits. It's, you know, hard to... Cherry pick when there's only one cherry. <laughs> um, works in workplace setting too. There's a Geico uh, insurance. What they did is they went in, offered weekly educational sessions, added some healthy options in the cafeteria, saw significant improvements in both physical function, general health, vitality, all the things you'd expect eating healthier, but also mental health. And this led to improved worker productivity, which is probably all what the company cared about. Um, and so they took it nationwide. Um, ten corporate sites across the country, half continued, didn't do anything. And the other half, um, they just gave this, uh, you know, uh, education, you know, added lentil soup and bean burritos, healthy stuff to the, uh, to the cafeterias at, at the workplace. Saw significant improvements in depression, anxiety, fatigue, emotional well-being, daily functioning, emotional health um, in the places that did that. Um, and so, you know, uh, your lifestyle changes, like exercise, uh, can improve not only physical health, but mental health as well in terms of diet. Plant-based diets is what we have the best evidence base for. Killer number 11 is systemic blood infections. Uh, sure, there are certain foodborne bacteria that can burrow through the intestinal wall, get into your bloodstream, or in women, crawl up into their bladder. We've known for decades now that's actually bacteria crawling up from the rectum that cause bladder infections in women, but we didn't know where this reservoir of bladder-infecting E. coli was coming from until now. That's, that's where the, 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 so, sorry, chicken. So, the, uh, we now have Thanks to genetic fingerprinting techniques, we now have direct proof of a direct link between uh, farm animals, meat, and bladder infections in women. Solid evidence that urinary tract infections can be what's called a zoonosis, an animal-to-human disease. You say, wait a second. Who, who eats undercooked chicken? I mean, can't you just use a meat thermometer, cook the meat through? What's the big deal? The big deal it's what's called cross-contamination. If you take 40 families, give them a frozen chicken, and prepare and cook in their home as they normally would, and multitudes of antibiotic-resistant bacteria jump from the chicken into the guts of the volunteer even before they eat it. So you can incinerate that chicken to ash. You don't even have to eat any of it. You're already infected before it makes it into the pot. Say, so, okay, well, wait a second. Oh, so um, and uh, within days, the chicken bacteria had multiplied to the point of becoming a major part of the person's gut floor. Chicken bacteria was like taking over. 
say, so, okay, well, wait a second. What if you use safe handling guidelines in addition to safe cooking guidelines, like the USDA recommends, where we're actually supposed to be doing is spraying a bleach solution around all common kitchen surfaces. They instructed people how to do that, gave them the chicken again, still... Um, and then came in later, swabbed around their kitchen, found significant levels of salmonella, campylobacter, serious human pathogens on, you know, some uh, uh, utensils and dishcloth counter, sink rim, cupboard, etc. Right? Uh, so the reason that families have more bacteria from feces in their kitchen sink than on their toilet seat is because people tend to rinse chickens in the sink, not the toilet. <laughs> so unless our, our kitchen is like some biohazard lab, the only way we're going to guarantee not leaving infection around the kitchen is to not bring it into our homes in the first place. Okay, now the good news is it's not like you eat chicken once and you're colonized for life. Um, in this study here, the chicken bacteria only seemed to last for about 10 days for the person's good bacteria to kind of muscle it into submission. The problem is, you know, many American families eat chicken more than once every 10 days, so maybe constantly reintroducing these chicken bugs into their system, which then may crawl up the urethra and claws. Um, uh, bladder infection, some of which can get really quite serious. Um, and you say, wait a second, you can't sell unsafe cars, you can't sell unsafe toys. How is it even legal to sell unsafe meat? Well, they do it by blaming the consumers. One USDA poultry microbiologist said, look, raw meats are not idiot proof, right? Yeah, they can be mishandled when they are. It's like, it's like handling a hand grenade. You pull the pin, someone's going to get hurt. <laughs> now, while some may question the wisdom of selling hand grenades in supermarkets, or uh, poultry microbiologists disagree, saying, no, it's the consumer that has the responsibility. It's like a car company saying, yeah, we installed faulty brakes, but it's you know, your fault for not putting your kid in a seatbelt or something. The head of the CDC's Foodborne Illness Division, Food Poisoning Division, famously responded to this blame the victim attitude coming from the meat industry. Is it reasonable, she asked. Is it reasonable that if a consumer undercooks a hamburger, their three-year-old dies? Is that reasonable? Not to worry, the meat industry's on it. They now have FDA approval for a bacteria-eating virus they can spray on the meat. Uh, now, the... Industries concerned about consumer acceptance of these so-called bacteriophages may present some of it a challenge to the industry. So, of course, they're not going to label it or anything. But if they think that's going to be a challenge, check out their other bright idea. The effect of extracted housefly peas. This is a sciencey way of saying they want to smear a maggot mixture on the meat. Now, wait, it's a low cost and simple. Think about it. Look, maggots thrive off of rotting flesh. However, there have been no reports of maggots having any serious diseases. So, hey, they must be filled with some kind of antibacteria, something, right? Have you ever seen a maggot sneeze? I don't think so. So, <laughs> let's take some maggots, grow them three days old, wash them off, towel them off, a little Vitamix action here. Voila! Safer meats. 
All right, we talked about kidney failure. What about liver failure? We've known for decades you can actually treat liver failure with a plant-based diet, significantly reducing the toxins that would otherwise build up eating meat without a fully functional liver to detoxify your blood. Though one does have to admit there are some people consuming plant-based diets with worsening liver function. Uh, They're called alcoholics, living off of corn and (laughs) potatoes and grapes, strictly plant-based, but not doing so good. We're not clear exactly. Killer number 13, high blood pressure, 78 million Americans affected. Um, As we age, our pressures get higher and higher, such that by age 60, the majority of us are hypertensive. So wait a second, if most of us get high blood pressure when we get older, maybe it's less a disease and more just a natural inevitable consequence of aging. No, here's age, here's uh, the the researchers went to, um, uh, this is back 19, we've known back to the 1920s that that's not the case. Researchers went and measured the blood pressure of a thousand people living in rural Kenya, um, the traditional Kenyan diet was uh, lots of basically um, uh, yeah, corn and beans and vegetables, fruit and greens. Um, our pressures tend to go up as we age, such that most of us are high, have high blood pressure by age 60. Their blood pressures go down when they age. And the lower, the better. We now have evidence that even people under 120 over 80 may benefit from blood pressure reduction. If you went to your doctor with 120 over 80, you get a gold star. But now we know even people under 120 over 80 may benefit from blood pressure reduction. So the ideal blood pressure, the no benefit from reducing it further blood pressure, 110 over 70. 110, I mean, is it even possible? To get pressures down to 110 over 70, it's not just possible. It's normal for those eating healthy enough diets. A few years at this rural Kenyan hospital, 1,800 patients were admitted. How many, how many cases of high blood pressure did they find? Zero. Wow. Uh, must have had low rates of heart disease, right? Uh, no, they had no rates of heart disease. Not a single case of atherosclerosis. Our number one killer was found. Rural China, same thing. About the 110 over 70, their entire lives, 70-year-olds, same average blood pressure as 16-year-olds. Right? Now, we say African diet, Asian diet, vastly different diets. What they shared in common is that they're plant-based day-to-day with meat only eaten on special occasions. So why do we think it's the plant-based nature of the diets that was so protective? Because in the Western world, um, the only, according to the American Heart Association, the only group really getting it down that low on average are those eating strictly plant-based diets, uh, coming in at an average of about 110 over 65. The largest study of plant-based eaters to date, this is looking at 89,000 Californians, Compared uh, non-vegetarians, those who eat meat like on a daily basis, at least once a day, compared to semi-vegetarians or flexitarians, people eat meat more like a once a week basis, um, uh, versus those who eat uh, no meat except fish, versus those who eat no meat, period, versus those who eat no meat, eggs, or dairy, and found this kind of stepwise drop 
in high blood pressure rates, the more and more plant-based the diet became. Same thing with type 2 diabetes. Same thing with obesity rates, right? So, okay, sure, you can throw the vast majority of your risk out the window by eating strictly plant-based, but the important thing, I think, about this slide is that it's not all or nothing. It's not black or white. Any movement we can make along the spectrum towards eating healthier, um, the, more, the more benefits we can accrue. You show this experimentally, like, you know, you take, uh, you take vegetarians, you give them meat, and you pay them enough to eat it, and their blood pressures go up. Or you do the reverse experiment, you take people who already eat meat, you remove meat from their diet, their blood pressures go down within seven days. And this is after the vast majority stopped or reduced their blood pressure medications. So we're talking lower pressures on fewer drugs. That's the power of plans, so you say, well, wait a second, so does the American Heart Association recommend a no-meat diet? Well, they, no, they recommend this low-meat diet, so-called DASH diet. So well, wait a second, when this DASH diet was being created, were they just not aware of this landmark research done by Harvard's Frank Sachs? Uh, no, they were aware. The chair of the design committee that came up with the DASH diet was Frank Sachs, right? Um, see, the, uh, the DASH diet was created with the number one goal of capturing the blood pressure and lowering benefits of a vegetarian diet, yet contain enough animal products to make it palatable to the general population. They didn't think the public could handle the truth, right? Now you can see what they were thinking. Look, just like drugs never work, unless you actually take them. Diets never work unless you actually eat them. So they're like, look, we can't tell everyone to eat strictly plant-based. No one's going to do that. So if we soft-pedal the message, if we come up with some kind of compromised diet, you know, on a population scale, you know, maybe we'll do more good. Okay. Tell that to the thousand American families a day that lose a loved one to high blood pressure. Maybe it's time to start telling the American public the truth. Killer number 14 is Parkinson's disease. Is a plant-based diet reduce one's risk of Parkinson's disease? Well, we know that most studies done today have found this link between dairy product consumption and the development of Parkinson's disease. Why might that be? Because there are neurotoxic chemicals within the milk supply. So high levels of organochlorine pesticides, for example, found not only in milk, but in certain regions of the brain on autopsy in Parkinson's victims. Um, uh, they're talking about pollutants like tetrahydrosoquinoline, uh, which is actually what scientists give to primates in a laboratory to try to recreate the disease. Found mostly in cheese, actually. Um, and so there's been calls on the dairy industry to pretty please test their products for toxins. You know, good luck with that. Of course, you could just not drink it, but then what would happen to your bones? <laughs> That's a marketing ploy. If you look at the actual science, milk does not appear to protect against hip fracture risk, whether you're drinking as an adult, whether you're drinking as a teen, doesn't matter, doesn't work, may actually even increase 
um, fracture risk, which could explain why the countries with the highest dairy consumption in the world also have the highest hip fracture rate. So Swedish researchers decided to put it to the test. More than 100,000 uh, men and women followed for years, and milk-drinking women had significantly higher rates of what? Higher rates of death. Um, significantly more heart disease, uh, heart attacks and strokes, significantly more cancer for each daily glass of milk. Those women, unfortunate enough to be drinking three glasses of milk a day, had nearly twice the risk during that time of dying prematurely, and they had more hip and bone fractures um, uh, as well. More milk, more fractures, and uh, milk-drinking men also had higher rates of death uh, yet, you know, for some reason, you never see milk ads like this. I'm not sure exactly what they... <clears throat> and finally, aspiration pneumonia, which is caused by swallowing difficulties due to a stroke or Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, things you've already talked about. Okay, so here's the top 15 causes of death, and a plant-based diet can help prevent nearly all of them, can be used to treat more than half of them, and even reverse the course of disease in some of them, including, in some cases, our top three killers. Now, look, there are drugs that can help, too. There's cholesterol-lowering statin drugs. They're hard. There's you know, insulin injections, various oral pills. Um, there's uh, many different classes of uh, high blood pressure medications to try to force people's blood pressure down. But the same diet does it all. It's not like there's you know, a heart-healthy diet that's somehow different from a brain-healthy diet. No, a kidney-healthy diet, a liver-healthy diet, a whole body-healthy diet. One diet to rule them all. And, uh, and what about drug side effects? I'm not talking about a little rash or something. Prescription drugs kill. More than 100,000 Americans every year. This is before the opiate epidemic, too. Uh, 106,000 Americans dead every year. This is not overdoses. This is not uh, medication mistakes. This is taken as prescribed by physicians. Uh, so wait a second. 106,000 Americans dead every year. That means the sixth leading cause of death in the United States is doctors. The sixth leading cause of death is me. Thankfully, I can be prevented with a plant-based diet. Now, the, uh, now, seriously, if you look at tens of thousands of, compared to tens of thousands of American vegetarians, those that eat meat, about twice the odds of being on aspirin, sleeping pills, tranquilizers, antacids, painkillers, blood pressure medications, laxatives, of course, as well as insulin. So plant-based diets are great for people that don't like taking drugs, for people that don't like paying for drugs, for people that don't like risking drug side effects. Want to solve the healthcare crisis? I've got a suggestion. There's only one diet that's ever been proven to reverse heart disease in the majority of patients, a plant-based diet. So, you know, anytime anyone tries to sell you on some new diet they heard about, do me a favor, ask one simple question. Has this diet been proven to reverse heart disease? You know, number one reason me and all my loved ones will die? The answer is no. Why would you even consider it? If that's all a plant-based diet could do, reverse the number one killer of men and women, uh, shouldn't that kind of be the default diet until proven otherwise? Uh, and then the fact that can also be useful in preventing, arresting, or reversing other leading killers like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure seem to make the case for plant-based eating simply overwhelming. Most deaths. The United States are preventable and related 
to nutrition. According to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest study on human risk factors to date, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the number one cause of death in the United States, it's our diet. Number one cause of disability in the United States, it's our diet. Bumping tobacco smoking to number two, cigarettes now only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills hundreds of thousands more. So if most deaths are preventable or related to nutrition, then obviously nutrition is the number one thing taught in medical school, right? <laughs> it's the number one thing your doctor talks to you about at every single visit, right? So wait a second, how could there be this disconnect between the science and the practice of medicine? Well, let me end with a thought experiment to try to understand what's going on. Imagine yourself a smoker back in the 1950s. You know, back in the 50s, the average per capita cigarette consumption was 4,000 cigarettes a year. I mean, the average person smoked half pack a day, on average. The media was telling people to smoke. Famous athletes agreed. Even Santa Claus wanted you to smoke. <laughs> Look, you want to keep fit and uh, stay slender, so you make sure to smoke and eat lots of hot dogs to stay trim and eat lots of sugar to stay slim and trim. A lot better than that apple there. I mean, sheesh, right? Though apples do connote goodness and freshness, reads one internal tobacco industry memo, which brings up many possibilities for a youth or they want to make apple-flavored cigarettes for kids. Shameless. For digestion's sake, you smoke. I mean, no curative power is claimed by Philip Morris, but look, better be safe than sorry and smoke. Blow in her face and she'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> no woman ever says, no, they're so round, so firm, so fully packed. <laughs> I mean, after all, John Wayne smoked them until he got lung cancer and died. Now, you know, back then, even the paleo folks were smoking, <laughs> and so were the doctors. Now, this is not to say there wasn't controversy within the medical profession. Sure, some doctors smoked camels, you know, but others uh, preferred Lucky, so there was a little disagreement there. The leader of the U.S. Senate agreed who wouldn't want to give their throat a vacation. Not a single case of throat irritation. How could there be when cigarettes are just as pure as the water you drink? Maybe over in Flint, Michigan. <clears throat> but don't worry, if you do get irritated, your doctor can always write you a prescription for cigarettes. This is in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So when the AMA is saying that smoking on balance may be good for you, the American Medical Association is saying that where could you turn back then if you just wanted the facts? What's the new data advanced by science? Well, 
She was too tired for fun. And then she smoked a camel. (laughs) Babe Ruth spoke of proof positive medical science. That is when he still could speak before he died of throat cancer. Now, if by some miracle there was some smokingfacts.org website back then that could deliver the science directly, bypassing commercially corruptible institutional filters, you would have become aware of studies like this. This is an Adventist study out of California, published in 1958, showing that non-smokers had at least 90% less lung cancer than smokers. But this wasn't the first. You know, when famed surgeon Michael DeBakey was asked why his studies back in the 30s linking lung cancer and smoking were simply ignored, he had to remind people what it was like back then. We were a smoking society. It was everywhere. It was in the movies, medical meetings where one heavy haze of smoke smoking was, in a word, normal. So, back to our thought experiment. As a smoker in the 50s, in the know, right, you realize the best available balance of evidence suggests your smoking habit oh, not so good for you. So, what do you do? Do you change or do you wait? If you wait until your doctor tells you between puffs to quit, you could have cancer by then. If you wait until the powers that be officially recognize it, like the Surgeon General did in the subsequent decade, you could be dead by then. It took... More than 7,000 studies and the deaths of countless smokers before the first Surgeon General's report against smoking came out. You'd think maybe after the first 6,000 studies it could give people a little heads up or something? (laughs) Powerful industry, right? Maybe, I mean, one wonders how many people are needlessly dying from dietary diseases now Maybe we should have stopped smoking after the 700th study like this. As a smoker in the 50s, on one hand, you had all of society, the government, the medical profession itself telling you to smoke. And on the other hand, all you had was the science. If you've been aware of studies like this, All right, well, let's fast forward 55 years. You know, there's a new Adventist study out of California warning Americans about something else they may be putting in their mouth. And, of course, it's not just one study. Put all the studies together. Um, And uh, mortality from all causes put together. Many of our dreaded diseases significantly lower among those eating more plant-based. So, instead of someone going along with America's smoking habits in the 50s, Imagine you or someone you know going along with America's eating habits today. What do you do? I mean, with access to the science, you realize the best available balance of evidence suggests your eating habits not so good for you. So do you change or do you wait? If you wait until your doctor tells you between bites to, qu- to change, it could be too late. In fact, the, uh, even after the Surgeon General's report came out, the medical community still dragged their feet. The AMA actually went on record refusing to endorse the Surgeon General's report. Why? Could it have been because they were just handed a $10 million check from the tobacco industry? Maybe. Okay, so we know why the AMA was sucking up to the tobacco industry. But why weren't more individual doctors speaking out? Well, there were a few ahead of their time, speaking up against industries, killing millions, but why not more? Maybe 
It's because the majority of physicians themselves smoke cigarettes. Just like the majority of physicians today continue to eat foods that are contributing to our epidemics of dietary disease. What was the AMA's rallying cry back then? Everything in moderation. Extensive scientific studies have proven smoking in moderation. Oh, that's fine. Sound familiar? The food industry uses the same tobacco industry tactics, twisting the science, misinformation. The same scientists for hire paid to downplay the risk of cigarette smoke and toxic chemicals are the same paid for by the National Confectioners Association to downplay the risks of candy and the same paid for by the meat industry to downplay the risks of meat. Animal foods and processed foods uh, may be killing 14 million people every year around the world. So those of us involved in this evidence-based nutrition revolution, we're talking about 14 million lives in the balance. So, you know, plant-based eating can be considered kind of the nutritional equivalent of stopping smoking. But how long do we have to wait before the CDC says, oh, don't wait for open-heart surgery to start eating healthy as well? Excuse me. Until the system changes. We need to take personal responsibility for our own health, for our family's health. We can't wait until society catches up to the science again because it's a matter of life and death. In the last year, uh, Dr. Kim Williams became president of the American College of Cardiology. He was asked in an interview why he himself uh, follows the same diet he recommends to all his patients, a strictly plant-based diet. Uh, I don't mind dying, Dr. Williams replied. I just don't want it to be my own fault. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, We'd uh, be happy to take some questions, and we do have uh, copies of my uh, latest book here, How Not to Die. All proceeds from the sale of the book goes to charity, and all my work is available free at nutritionfacts.org. Thank you. Questions? Yes. Oh, a fantastic question. I will repeat the question. I think there's some kind of microphones going around, but let me repeat the question for those who didn't hear. Um, what about rheumatoid arthritis? Can diet play a role in rheumatoid arthritis? And absolutely, of all the autoimmune diseases, there's, uh, so plant-based diets have been found to be the most effective intervention, looking at drugs, looking at it for multiple sclerosis, for example, for Crohn's disease. These are both other autoimmune diseases, but we have most data behind rheumatoid arthritis. So we have these interventional studies where you take people, randomize the two groups, half eat their regular diet, the other half put them on a plant-based diet, and you see dramatic improvements in not only functional mobility like grip strength and morning stiffness and pain, but uh, you know objective laboratory values like inflammation, et cetera, um, switching to a uh, plant-based diet. So um, uh, that's uh, some of the most exciting research. The Adventist 2 study actually came out 
um, found that those eating plant-based had significantly lower levels of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is hypothyroidism, another autoimmune um, disease. So, um, and it shouldn't be a big surprise. I mean, that if you have an inflammatory condition, eating an anti-inflammatory diet would help. But it's nice to see these interventional studies where you put it to the test, see these really dramatic benefits. And look, even if you didn't, even if it didn't do anything for rheumatoid, you'd still want to eat healthy because look, it's bad enough you have rheumatoid arthritis, you don't want to have a heart attack, you know, have a stroke on top of the right. Right. Okay, so you still eat healthy, but the fact that can help um, and really worked quite um, dramatically. So uh, the study I'm thinking about in particular, I have a, a video about it. It was a year-long study. But within the first month, and they only met, it might have happened within the first week, they only measured a month every month. At month one, they got all the benefit. And then it just stayed the benefit throughout the rest of the year. So it happened that quickly. They didn't think, they didn't expect it. Maybe even happened earlier than that. So, uh, yes, so, so I encourage people um, with, uh, with autoimmune conditions, inflammatory conditions, particularly rheumatoid arthritis, because we have a great evidence base to start eating healthy. Now, there are specific foods beyond just plant based in general. Um, and so that's why, I mean, the book doesn't just have one line, eat plans, right? But, you know, I have a chapter on each of the 15 leading causes of death. These are particular foods for high blood pressure, particular foods for room So something like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, turmeric and some of these other, you know, powerfully anti-inflammatory foods may have particular benefits beyond just in general eating a nice clean diet. Other questions? Yeah, well, yeah. You, well, you convinced me. But I have a, a subsidiary question. What about, do we have to watch out for the GMO trap? Is that, is that a trick, is something we have to watch out for, or we just go plant, period? So um, if, you up, if you go to Nutrition Facts and type in GMO, all, all the videos will come up talking about the science. We yet to have any human data suggesting harm from genetically modified um, organisms. And the, those who are opposed to genetic modification say, exactly, the studies haven't been done, so how can you just put something in the food supply when we don't have the safety studies, which is a legitimate um, uh, perspective. Um, but, um, the, uh, but, you know, I mean, the answer isn't a, you know, even if you have a non-GMO Twinkie, it'd still be better to... Uh, you know, an organic Twinkie, uh, you know, I don't know, a gluten-free Twinkie. It's still, you still, you want to eat healthy regardless. Though there is a concern about uh, um, uh, Roundup Ready soy. Um, so the genetically modified soy is, is, is genetically modified to resist a certain herbicide. Um, and so, not surprisingly, at a retail level, um, GMO soy has higher pesticide residues. So we're not concerned necessarily about the genetic element itself, but the fact that it, it just allows it to be sprayed that much more uh, with pesticides and so um, has significantly higher levels than either conventional non-GMO soy or organic soy. Um, if you're concerned about that, you can just simply choose organic soy products. Most soy products are organic anyway, and by USDA definition, cannot include genetically modified ingredients. You say a little more about Alzheimer's? I, I, I forget. Um, no. the, uh, uh, so, so not something to joke about. Um, uh, so, so I have a whole chapter on brain disease where I talk about um, Alzheimer's. And not just Alzheimer's, but um, other types. So there's something called multi-infarct dementia, which is little kind of holes in the brain um, caused by tiny little blood vessels kind of clotting off. Um, uh, uh, clogging off um, caused by, and the same cardiovascular risk factors for clogging off in your heart 
that would cause multi-infarct dementia. In fact, that's maybe why we saw those dramatic results in the Adventist study. When they, that wasn't an Alzheimer's study. That was a dementia study. So by eating red meat or white meat, two to three times the risk of becoming demented, that's demented by any cause. Um, and so although Alzheimer's is the most common uh, cause of dementia, it could have been a multi-infarct dementia, which would make sense if they were controlling their blood pressure and controlling their cholesterol because they're eating healthier diets. Um, but, and also a cognitive uh, decline. Um, there is, uh, on average, in the United States, for example, there's brain shrinkage. You actually lose brain volume and significant amount of brain volume year after year um, once you start uh, getting um, uh, in kind of the second half of life. But that doesn't happen to everybody. Some people actually gain brain mass. Some people don't lose at all. And you can kind of tie to various risk factors. And you can, um, you know, you can... Now we have these fancy MRI techniques called the PET scans, basically, where you can, when you can correlate things like what's their cholesterol in their blood with actual blood flow within certain areas of the brain, like the memory center, like the hippocampus within the brain. So we're able to now uh, pinpoint some of the risk factors. And the most exciting thing, not to spoiler alert for those who haven't got to the chapter, um, is, um, okay, prevention, fine. What about treatment? Um, and so finally, they, took, uh, they did an interventional study where they took hundreds of uh, Alzheimer's victims and randomized them into two groups. One uh, continued to, to do nothing, essentially, um, or what their doctor told them, which is essentially nothing. We just have symptomatic relief in terms of drugs with Alzheimer's. And the other half controlled their cardiovascular risk factors like cholesterol, high blood pressure, and were able to significantly slow down disease progression in that group. Now, note... I didn't say stop it, and I didn't say reverse it, right? Um, and, and, you know, it's controversial whether or not we want to slow down the disease at all at the later stages, where you may not even recognize yourself in the mirror. But in an earlier stage, when you're still able to recognize family members and still able to enjoy a quality of life, slowing down disease progression um, is significant. That's something that's never been able to shown with drugs or any kind of uh, other uh, allopathic intervention, but was able to be shown in this study. It was really exciting. Or, yes? Do you give credence to one's blood okay. type and their ability to combat bad eating? The, only, the uh, only reason I care about your blood type is if you need an emergency blood transfusion, in which case we'd need to know that. Um, no, there's no, so I actually have videos, so if you type blood type diet, right, there's this famous book, the, you know, uh, by uh, Paul Diamo, talks about uh, trying to correlate blood type with diet, and it's, and so I just go through the literature of people that have actually took it serious enough to dig into the science and found out that, and basically conclude that it's nutritional astrology, that there's no... Um, connection um, between what you eat and what your um, blood type is. Though it does sell a lot of books. <laughs> so you got to you know, balance it against that. I, yeah. I have a question here. Where are we? Over here. Up here. Up, ah! A very important question got for it. me. And, and, and I'm sure a lot of people in this audience. How does... Dark chocolate fit into the category, oh. and how much? Ah, okay. Well, so I've got a bunch of uh, I've got a lot of videos on chocolate. 
Um, and that's because there's a lot because the, thanks to the Hershey Corporation um, and Mars, uh, the Mars Corporation, they fund a lot of research. Now that's a problem because of the conflicts of interest. So you really have to dig deep. And so that's what I love doing. So I've got just a lot of videos, and the the and they all basically end the same way. Um, and that is that the sugar in chocolate is bad for you. The fat in chocolate is bad for you. It's saturated. It's cocoa butter. It's actually um, raises your cholesterol. But the cocoa solids themselves, you know, like when it says seventy percent cocoa solids or eighty-five percent, if you're like really bold, um, uh, that those are actually really beneficial. Um, packed with antioxidants, have all sorts of really great effects on improving artery function, all sorts of really extraordinary things. But, so you say, wait a second, how can I get the chocolate without the sugar and fat? And cocoa powder. The answer is cocoa powder. So cocoa powder is everything that's good in chocolate, um, which are those cocoa solids, just pure cocoa solids, but doesn't have the saturated fat, doesn't have uh, sugar. And you say, well, wait a second, it's all bitter. How do you eat it? Look, you take a, a smoothie, Right, that's already sweet because you had berries and stuff like that. You had some cocoa powder. So making your smoothie, your morning smoothie, a chocolate smoothie, you actually just made it healthier. And you know, you can get your chocolate fix at the same time. You can also uh, like uh, what I oh, do we have to? Is it they're kicking us out here? Um, uh, the uh, uh, so what I like to make, um, you know, I make steel cut oatmeal. Um, and I add cocoa powder with, you know, some dried fruit. And so I have this rich chocolate. It's like ch eating chocolate pudding for breakfast. And, you know, pumpkin seeds and, uh, you know, oh, yummy. Um, a, a canned tart cherry, water-packed tart cherries. So I have this chocolate cherry amazing oatmeal. And it's just all healthy, yummy, wonderful food. Yeah. But, May I ask yeah. a question, please? Yes. Here. Over here. Ah, Lights are in my face. Um, thank you. I um, I tend to go back and forth. I eat a lot of vegetarian food, but I do feel a lack of protein. How, what do you attribute that? When I eat too much vegetarian food, I feel bloated. I uh, especially grains, and then I feel like I'm lacking protein. That I don't feel the same energetic uh, stamina. Um, how do you combat that? So, so energy doesn't come from protein, right? Energy comes from calories, right? And so, I mean, what, what can happen, uh, kind of a, a common thing one sees when people try to transition eating healthier, is you can't eat the same amount of food. So we've grown up our whole lives, and we have an idea, just without even thinking about what dinner is. Like, you look down at a plate, this much food, that's what dinner means, or that's what lunch means, okay. But, but that's because we eat these really calorically dense, nutrient-poor diets, standard American diet. When you switch to eating healthy, right, all of a sudden there's lots more nutrition, but fewer calories. Such a, If you eat the same amount of food, you can actually be calorie deficient, energy deficient. You end up at the end of the day, um, and you, know, you could be on a, you know, 1,100 calories or something. You're like on a starvation diet. You don't feel it. You just stuffed yourself. Right, but you're literally, but you just. I mean, if you actually do a calorie count, you're not getting enough calories if you're eating if you're eating all whole healthy foods. So, that means you have to eat more frequently. You have to eat snacks. You have to eat calorically dense healthy foods like nuts, seeds, nut butters, seed butters, avocado smoothies. Ways you can really pack in calories. And I think that's what you find. So if you feel lagging energy, you're just literally not eating enough. I mean. And, and, and typically, it's because you know we're just kind of we're just trained to think a certain amount of food 
But, you know, I mean, like, you know, a tablespoon of olive, of all, any oil, all right, it's the most calorically dense food on the planet, uh, 120 calories for one spoonful, right? I mean, you, you swish that down, you wouldn't even feel anything, right? Okay, what if you had 100 calories of broccoli, 100 calories of tomatoes, 100 calories of strawberries? That's a whole big heaping bowl of strawberries, right? Oh, that would actually be, oh, that was a nice appetizer there. I mean, and so you can imagine, so you just have to eat a lot of, you know, I mean, you'd have to eat like wheelbarrows worth of arugula to get, you know, caloric needs. I mean, you just couldn't do it, right? Um, and so, you know, so make sure you eat legumes every day, which have a lot, you know, with, uh, with are calorically nutrient dense. Uh, you know, beans, split peas, two peas, lentils, whole grains, not refined grains. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully that'll help. And if it doesn't, let me know, and we'll keep tweaking. Okay. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Up here. Yep. I got a question on... Yes. Uh, I read about the uh, fish oil. In yeah. Your, in your book, you said no conclusion. You said it's not beneficial. It's not advantageous to... Uh, to take fish oil. What is your what is the opinion on that? More yeah, like? yeah. So no opinion necessary. We've got right. that's what science is for. Right. That's a nice thing. No, so um, so early studies on fish oil showed really quite remarkable benefits. Just launched this whole multi-million dollar industry. But unfortunately, even the same researchers couldn't repeat their own results. And so they had a larger study, did the same thing, and actually had worse, they had more heart disease in the fish oil group. And then they've done a bunch of studies since, and, they've, and you put them all together, and so there's this famous meta-analysis published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, put all the studies together, and it's a total wash, meaning no benefit to fish oil consumption. We were so excited early on that something so relatively cheap, easy, over-the-counter, low side effect profile could have these remarkable benefits, but... Unfortunately, it's just not true, so uh, waste of money. Okay. And I know I'm going to want to have time to sign some folks' books, so if you have any questions, meet me a line in the back. I'd be happy to sign for anybody. Thank you so much.